In the 21st century, two clans, Clan Richard and Clan Joe, united to discuss two films each week. Their podcast did not express the views of their feudal lords. If you are a child, this tale is not for you. If you can't listen, turn this off now. This is Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Welcome to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the program in which two fellas watch two films and discuss them in uh, in great length and all all that stuff. <laughs> I'll get better. 20 seconds later, 20 seconds later, we got the description of the series. <laughs> Good job, Richard. Woohoo! I yeah! did it! I did it! Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Uh, I am dude one. Tina, Richard. I do not hold you. Tina, I do not hold you responsible for the way that <laughs> intro was played out. That is not your fault. Uh, I love you, mom. Uh, I am dude one. Richard, dude two. Joe. <laughs> I don't know why that's still funny. I st- I think of Blade Runner with that now. Honestly, that's the first thing that comes into my head. You look like a giant, a giant pink. <laughs> naked Ana de Armas just down staring at you going you look like a good Joe <laughs> that's my terrible Ana de Armas impression I, I, I have I, I'm so sorry Miss de Armas wait a minute that wasn't Ana de, legendary actress Ana de Armas in the room just now no it, it was me oh okay cool alright it worked <laughs> so good so good uh, how is the good Joe today Joe, Joe isn't so bad. I've been watching uh, a lot of Bruce Lee movies uh, because of the new Criterion set, the uh, Bruce Lee, his greatest hits, and I still got to watch Game of Death. I haven't watched all of it yet, but man, the way if the way people complain about how they include like uh, deceased actors into big franchise movies, <sighs> and this is oh my god, oh the boy. way the way they do it in this is. I'm sure you. I, I'm sure you've seen clips at least, you, right? You've shown me. I think you either you've shown me or I've seen some online of some of the stuff. And like, I think I think like the Carrie Fisher stuff was a bit like eh, in the Rise of Skywalker, a little, a little wonky, a little, wonky. A little wonky. Um, and then of course the weird decision to have Peter Cushing return in uh, Rogue One, but at least. With those two movies, they they made it work to some degree, but from what I've seen with Game of Death, nah, <laughs> nah, fam. Uh, but but how how have how have you been? Uh, you know, I've been all right. You know, just trying to get through the days, be productive, and 
uh, just keep myself keep myself go. Just kind of keep relaxed. Try to keep peaceful. You know, like I'm still doing my meditations. Um, I still do. I still like. I'm trying to do like the exercises and practices. I use an app called Headspace. Not a sponsor, or they could be. Sup? Give me a call. But it's it's really useful, and uh, it, they're doing uh, like a year for free for people who are unemployed because of the coronavirus, like myself. Um, and so it's just, uh, it's, it's incredibly useful. And I know I said this in the first episode, but times are tough and they're, and they seem to be getting tougher. So, you know, just keep, keep healthy, keep safe, keep your, keep your brain healthy, keep your body healthy. And, uh, you know, just, just keep a routine, just try to keep active. That's what I'm trying to do. You know what? I'm glad you're doing that. And I think mental health, especially in this country, so often, uh, neglected as far as that you really got to take care of that especially with everything going on in the world you really do everything going on in the world right now you got to you got to do that i'm proud that you're you're taking those you're taking those steps thank you even this podcast even this podcast is somewhat therapeutic you know because i i I'm, i get i talk about things oh. and i get to talk about movies and i get to you know just think about movies movies in general has really helped just just watching movies and thinking about movies and of course i get to talk to my friend so that's always a bonus. Hi, buddy. Uh, this should be noted. This is not an officially prescribed <laughs> method uh, for your mental health. This is just a fun podcast. No, no. I mean, if 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 you enjoy listening, though, hey, you know, thank you. We hope you like it. One thing I think that's been helping us in this quarantine, I think you both agree, we wish we had it earlier in the quarantine, is the new PlayStation exclusive Ghost of Tsushima. You hear that rattling? That is my copy. That is my PlayStation box for Ghost of Tsushima. It's a real thing. In case you don't know what Ghost of Tsushima is, it's a game about a samurai. And it's an open world game where you're dealing with the Mongol invasion. And you're gaining allies, but you know there's some, custom- some customizable features to it. It's like the full-on samurai experience, almost. The game spares no expense. Exactly. One of my favorite things about the game is you can really customize how you how you experience the game. So with an English tra- English audio track and color, which the colors are beautiful. Oh, there's fantastic. Or you can experience it in color with Japanese audio track, which is nice. But even nicer, and the reason why I bought the game. Oh boy! At, at this full is, price this is, at oh. lunch. This is his absolute favorite thing ever. Like, this right Not even the fact that it's a full-on samurai game. It's this. This element that drove Joey to buying this game. This, what is it? This element is Kurosawa mode, which is black and white with Japanese audio. Now, it's in black and white because it's inspired by the acclaimed and legendary filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, famous for many great samurai films and also what i love about the mode is that there's scratches and dirt like they're like you would see in an old film print or even restored prints of japanese movies because the japanese film stock back then was very sensitive right this actually relates to this week's topic yes it does i think partly why we uh we rearranged this (laughs) (laughs) we had a previous idea and it's one we might do later honestly like i kept thinking about it and going what would we even talk about with this i don't want to spoil it so we'll 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 leave that for later but it was definitely not something at least not now that we're not jiving with yeah but as far as samurai movies and as far as kurosawa is concerned that's something that joey's always 
jiving with. Like, rain, sleet, snow, day, afternoon, night, whatever. Any moment of Joey's life, in the car, on the toilet, it's always samurai mode. And it's... Am I wrong? I mean, listen, listen. If you, if uh, any any day, any time of the week, unless I'm at work, of course, um, I'm a responsible worker. But <laughs> any any day, any time, I'll, I'll watch these movies. Especially the movie this week, which is in like my top five favorite movies ever. 1954's three and a half hour monumental, extraordinary epic Seven Samurai. Oh my God! Fun fact. About Seven Samurai. Um, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I'm going to rip the band-aid off. This is my first time seeing it. <gasps> She's shocked because he doesn't know. <laughs> it's like, I, I didn't just watch the movie with you. <laughs> we didn't talk about it at all. I had never seen Seven Samurai up until this point. Most Here's the thing. With the Seven Samurai, my, like acknowledgement of of seven samurai or any any kind of like kurosawa movie was always associated with these like hardcore hipster film nerds that all they could talk about is like kurosawa richard linklater and wes anderson and then they're just constantly just like you know whenever they talk about their weird like david lynch like <laughs> like experimental short films were like oh you know i was just i was so heavily inspired by the work of uh of uh, Richard Linklater and the Before Trilogy, and, and then, of course, uh, the many great, symmetrically uh, <laughs> fall-colored, beautiful uh, Wes Anderson films, and, of course, uh, Akira Kurosawa, who's just influencing it. And, and I'm not... <laughs> I don't want to, like... Even though I just completely made fun of it, I don't want to dog, like, movie nerds, because I am one, but, like, the kind of stereotypical, like, hipster, like movie nerd you know what i mean sure like it just i always kind of associated it with that not that it's a bad thing but that's just how i always thought of seven samurai was within that group of like movies and then that group of like filmmakers it's interesting you mentioned those because they're such they're so contemporary and so recent <laughs> such recent choices richard linklater and wes anderson but kurosawa he is a J- japanese filmmaker directed i believe like 30 movies okay over the span of I want to say close to like almost 50 years. It's absolutely insane how long his career was and how good, like late into his career, how good some of his movies were late into his career. Like Ron, dude, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was made by a really old man in some, in some respects, because it's such a amazing movie, but we're not talking about Ron today. No, we're talking about seven samurai, but like that period in the fifties and sixties for Kurosawa, so many hit after hit after hit after hit. You had Rashomon, Rashomon, which is basically referenced in The Last Jedi with the way they handle the the Luke and Kylo confrontation in, you know, how, how everybody interprets it. Right. And also Akiru, which is a great movie. Of course, The Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, which is, uh, of course, very influential on the Western, and uh, Throne of Blood, and The Hidden Fortress influenced Star Wars, so that basically just, like, well, we can blame that for all the blockbusters now, I guess. Thanks, Kurosawa! Gah! Thanks, Kurosawa. <laughs> but I think what, what uh, with Kurosawa, he really, I think what, one of the great things about him is that a lot of his works, a lot of his best works especially, are so very entertaining. Before we get into all of that, the characters of Seven Samurai and the, predominantly the plot. The plot, you have a bunch of farmers, they're getting attacked and raided by bandits, okay? These are pretty nasty looking bandits. One of them has an eye patch. 
listen, when you have an eye patch, that's typically a bad sign, and especially in older movies, because hey, unless you're Nick Fury or the main character for our next film, if you got an eye patch, I'm scared of you. And even then, Nick Fury, you can't always trust him either, you know, because he's that's just, true. You know, you're not wrong. How he is, but. With Seven Samurai, they, they the farmers are just tired of getting beaten down and kicked around, so they decide to hire hungry samurai. Yes, and why are they hungry, uh, Joey? What what is the what is the meaning behind hungry samurai? The farmers are are, are the lowest class that that we have featured in this movie. They ain't got no money. They can't offer the samurai anything else but rice mm-hmm. to the point where they have to eat they have to eat millet. Yeah. Can I just say, they get made fun of for eating millet. Oh, they do. A little. Mm-hmm. It's so mean. I'm sorry. I'm going to make fun of you because you're poor. Like, ha ha. Look at you eating a apple core. Loser. Man, people like to punch down. <laughs> people like to punch down, man. It's not. Jerks. It's not cool then, and it's certainly not cool now. It's not. But one of the, one of the essential ingredients for this film are the characters, okay? Yes. You have the seven samurai who they are all they are all pretty distinct and they have like their own unique little qualities they that do sort of get them on the team or you can distinguish them from one another like one of my favorite features is Kambe the leader played by Takashi Shimura who of course was in the original Godzilla and, I love that guy and in many um many Kurosawa movies I think more I think I think as many if not more than Toshiro Mifune or around the same amount I don't. I forget. Uh. Somebody could correct me, but uh, Kambe, like in other versions of Seven Samurai, like especially the officially approved remakes, the two Magnificent Seven films, and all the sequels, the leader character is usually really cool, like a real badass, I mean, like Yul Brenner. Denzel. I was like, when you cast someone like Denzel Washington, you can't not expect him to be like you know the coolest cat in the entire movie, you know. And when you got Kambe. He's not any of those things. Like we we like him because he is a nice guy from what we can tell and he is a good a good leader to to the the group of samurai but he's lost more battles than he's won. He's lucky to be alive. Heck, the one dude, one of the dudes that he recruits is a is an old war buddy he knew and that dude was lucky to be alive. He was hiding in the grass. Yeah. He, he was he thought he was going to die. Man. Yeah. And it, that's the great thing I like about this group is most of this group Okay, like, when you look at the Avengers, like, two of them might be useless, but, like, the rest of them are, like, super-powered beings, whereas the Seventh Samurai, it's literally the opposite. Okay, you got Kambe, who's lost a lot of battles, but, you know what, nice guy. Nice so guy, points. experience. And then, got, and then you got his old war buddy, Shishinroji, and... That dude has one of the best lines in the movie. You, you need to run in battle. You need to run when you attack, run when you retreat. When you can't run anymore, you die. But that's it. Uh, and he also helps out the farmers, I think, more than some of the other samurais do. I think he does. Yeah, he does. And then there's the wood chopping guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, like, listen, he's, he's just... Cho- he's good for comedic relief. He's just he's just chopping wood. And, you know, he's just like, hey! It's just chopping the wood. Like, he's doing it so enthusiastically, he's like, I'm the best at chopping the wood. What happens, he gets, like, asked a question and it throws him off or something? He gets asked, oh, how would you feel if you had to f- kill 30 bandits? And he just, he doesn't chop it properly. He, he just completely, like, misses the, the, the log and it's just like, what? 
<laughs> Excuse me? And, and then you have the kid, who is just a kid and, of course, annoying and, needs, <laughs> and, and, and gets himself involved with a love affair because he's young and stupid. He's thinking okay? with his wee-wee, okay? Brings me to the other members. You got Gorobe, okay, who's pretty good at strategically planning things, a pretty good shot as far as the bow and arrow, and... His test is one of my favorite scenes. Oh yes, he's the oh he's the badass. He's hardcore. So there's basically a test where the young samurai is asked by Kambe to whack any a samurai who comes in to see if they can like you know it might might be able to deflect it or whatever. And you think it's going to be the like somebody like basically takes the stick at one point and just like throws it around or, or whatever some cool maneuver. Gorobe Gorobe approaches the door. But he steps back and he realizes, wait a minute, this is, this is, um, ah, I see what you're trying to do. I see you're trying <laughs> to hit me. He's like, surely you jest. I see that. So great scene. Great <laughs> oh, that's scene. so good. And then you got Kyozo, who is, I like to call him Solemn Bob. And he is <laughs> like the greatest master oh samurai. Oh my God. He's, he's like, he's like an artist with a, with a samurai. So he's an artist with a katana. Like he's the guy that like, he does kind of the similar thing that, uh, that Mad Max does in um, uh, in, uh Mad Max Fury Road. Thank you, Mad Max Fury Road. Essentially, like goes off into the distance. You don't see what happens. You just know something happens. You're like, oh god, what's about to happen? And he comes back, and he's and and he's just tired. And you're like, did he just kill all those guys? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my! And, oh man! And with him, I just love the scene where we see his first duel, and. The, like the other guy says, "Huh, I guess it's a draw," and he's like, "No, I, I, I would have won that if it was real blades." <laughs> and he's just like, he's not, he's not being cocky no. or arrogant. He's just that sure of his skill. He knows himself that well, and he proves it. The guy gets killed. He proves it time and time again. Oh man! Ugh. And so basically, there's two incredibly useful people in that team. Yes, maybe not ca- like <laughs> so. It's the opposite of the Avengers, and then you have perhaps the most important the triangle, the, movie, the heart of the movie, Kikuchio, as I like to call him, the triangle, because he is the triangle. Kikuchio, played by the legendary, incomparable Toshiro. Mifune. Mm-hmm. Listen, I totally agree when you told me that he's like the heart of the movie. He is. Like, he's almost like a metaphor that fully encapsulates what the movie is and what the movie's about. Because, like, when we first see this guy, he's just silly. He's cocky. He has this giant samurai sword, this giant katana that's just obnoxiously huge. He's carrying it around like he's the coolest guy in town. Right. <laughs> and uh, like as the movie progresses, you kind of he kind of slowly like he still is somewhat of the comic relief. Like he has some of the funniest moments in the whole movie, but like he he genuinely like represents the kind of the soul of the movie. Uh, and I he's great. He's absolutely fantastic. And I think that the scene where he reveals, um, he reveal, he sort of in a, inadvertently reveals his background, because before then we know he's not a real samurai, but we don't know his exact story, right? Because he he has this scroll that he can't read that he stole off of some kid. So and his name isn't even real either. We never find out his real no. name in the movie, which I just. I don't want to say I just realized it, but I, I just remembered that again. <laughs> it's such a crazy detail. But he talks about how, like, this, like the farmers, you know, because the farmers have stashed away all this stolen samurai loot, and the samurai are incredibly offended. They are upset. They're like, this is disgraceful. This is outrageous. The one samurai just turns his back on everything. And then Kikuchio talks about how, like, the farmers... Yeah, they're not great people. Yeah. You know, they hide food. They, they they never share their stuff. But you know who made them like that? 
bandits and samurai. Boom. I said this to you when we were watching the movie. If I could pick one scene out of the movie that would encapsulate everything, mm-hmm. it would be that scene. It encapsulates the class struggle between those things, which I'll get to later. No, it's absolutely fan. It's I say fantastic a lot. It's absolutely fantastic scene. Absolutely fantastic scene. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Anytime <laughs> you gotta throw a Trump uh, impression every two seconds. I think he mandates it now, sadly. <laughs> but no, he that scene definitely like just like him encapsulates the whole thing. And he's like he's giving it to them too. Like he's he's not like like it's kind of funny because like earlier in the movie they kind of make fun of him for being like this drunk guy pretending to be a samurai, and then here's here's them just like giving these farmers crap for you know having all this stuff and he's like are you kidding me do you even know why these guys are doing this like do you understand do you, do you even comprehend why this is happening mm. and why like right basically a giant like screw you to these to these guys and they're like you know he's kind of got a point yeah no absolutely for um you know 110 uh percent sure and also going off i think this is a perfect bridge to the farmers because kikuchio is kind of that bridge between the samurai and the farmers the farmers are way more more uh, distinguished in this version of the story than they are in other versions. Which were you expecting that with this movie? Not, not really. I mean, you you kind of just know them as like these are the characters that you help, and then uh, the showcase is put on the heroes. Like you see the Avengers or Justice League or whatever. Like the people they save are just people that they save. They're not like inherently, you know. They try to make them stand out a little bit. Like you have the the one waitress. In Avengers, who kind of had a small moment in the film, and then she had like a whole deleted scene, and then in like Justice League, there's that family or whatever. Um, so they, they, oh yeah, 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 they try to have something, but it's it's not to the extent of this movie. Like the who's the who's the main uh, kid that kind of Rikichi? Rikichi, he has a whole story arc, and it's not even like it's it's not it's not even like something that sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not even something that's like. You know, you could take it out in the movies just fine. It like it's it's integral, it's important, and it leads up to that amazing like scene. Oh yeah, uh, where it has like that bi- that big reveal. I don't want to spoil it, but it's that big reveal moment for his character, and it's something that I'm just like, oh, oh my god! Like it took me a second to realize it too, and you're just like, oh my god. Wow, and I want to talk about that scene a little more. I'm not gonna. They, they attack like this, this like fort for the bandits or whatever. But it, this showcases why Kurosawa is one is one of the pr- masters of all cinema, not just Japanese cinema, but for all time. As you've said many times on this podcast, film is a visual medium. As I have, and it's nice to see when the, it's nice to see when they they more they let the images tell the story as you should in a lot of instances when when it works. And yes. there's a scene where the samurai have to attack this bandit fort, and it's such a great culmination of different things going on, a lot of different emotional things happening in that scene, and the music works perfectly, which I forgot the composer's name, but he did a great job with this movie, but the score and the acting and and the visuals and the editing with that scene, it just says everything you need to know. It might take you a second to realize it. But you look at it, and you don't need the subtitle. You don't need subtitles. You don't need something. You don't need to say, anything. This is what's happening with a megaphone or anything like that. You just you're just like, oh my! It's like the devastate the see the devastation of the scene just hits you. 
boom. And not, it goes beyond that too. It goes, like the little things, like bringing up Rikichi again. I just, I just feel like he, there's so many things to bring up with Rikichi. The scene after he argues with the other farmers, because the other farmers are just like, we should give this up. This is stupid. And Rikichi has a lot of personal investment in this, but also he's a close-up shot. Where Kurosawa, it should just be, could just be a close-up shot, whatever, no big deal. But like, there's, yeah. a gl- there's a glint of light in the water in the background. The way his face is lit is interesting. The trees, the tree branch, just shadows rustling over his head. It makes the shot. It's not like that. It adds to the story in a huge way. It's just these little things that he adds that makes it more three-dimensional, more, uh, more poetic, and just more, I think, more impactful. I think that's a testament to because obviously like i said earlier kurosawa is one of those guys that i just constantly heard about is like one of those like top tier influential filmmakers but you don't really know that until you see it happen yeah and so watching the movie i completely got it i completely understood why people love this guy just like you were saying like the way he composes a shot even just the way he places the actors and the way he frames a yes, shot yes. is outstanding Thank you for mentioning that. oh and my gosh the way he has like no one feels like they're out of place no one feels like they're on unimp- like like Kurosawa, like Kurosawa completely takes the frame it's all, it reminds me a lot of like one of my favorite comic uh, artists Sean Murphy who is also very good with layouts and very good with like, you know, keeping, keeping everything in the frame and like, and elevating it too. That's another thing. You know, he doesn't, like Kurosawa doesn't just look at a shot and say, okay, this is, this is functional. This works. Moving on. He says, okay, how do I bring this up? How do I elevate this? How do I make this better? How do I make this really sing? And unfortunately, there's not a lot of filmmakers that they just go, okay, this is functional, let's move on. Even with the littlest moments can be truly impactful. It's just because Kurosawa genuinely cares. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's important to mention with the framing, this was before this was before he had access to widescreen. Yeah. You know. That's you know what? I didn't even notice that, honestly. Like watching the movie, I like there was no point I went, This is the aspect ratio is it's squished. I didn't I never thought that. It's sque- <laughs> it squished. It makes it all the more, um, all the more impressive in re- in regards to just the, the framing of the movie and, and all that. But also, one of the things that I like about the movie, and I know it's the one thing that you heard a lot about this movie, the action scenes. Okay, let me just say, <laughs> let me just start with this. <laughs> so this movie is constantly like the action scenes in this movie are constantly um, praised. I hear so much about this. Like, anytime we, like, uh, like when Game of Thrones was on, like, Battle of the Bastards, you were like, this is really influenced by Seven Samurai and Kurosawa, and I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> but obviously, like, it, like there's build-up, and it kept going, going, going. And so it's just, I have this hype in my brain, like, okay, this movie's gonna have these amazing action scenes. And then, like, about three hours, ten minutes later, <laughs> just, just all this all this time later, I'm like, hey, what where, where is, is happening now? And then, like, for a good 10, 15 minutes, you have action scene. And in any other circumstance, I would have been like, I hate this movie. <laughs> you, made, you made me wait. You Like, it's like... It's like Batman v Superman. I'm gonna say it. <laughs> it's like Batman v Superman. That it's a oh that gosh. movie builds up to this to the to the moment where Batman and Superman fight, and it's not even the the most interesting fight in the movie. I'm sorry, it's not. 
the the best fight scene is just Batman being Batman. You could have just thrown that in the middle of the movie and it would have been like, okay, thank you for doing that. But no. But with thankfully with Seven Samurai, <laughs> they they make it worthwhile. Like everything matters, everything's done done well, and everything has a purpose, and everything's beautifully done. Then when we get to those action scenes at the end, it's like it's like the the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. It's like it's 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 fantastic. I hate to say fantastic again, but it is. Yeah, and with the action scenes, what I what I like about them, they are they are exciting on, on a on a certain level, and you know visually they are stunning. But it's also important to note that I think, especially in comparison to other action scenes we see back then and even today, it's not like the most no, horrified it's, scene. It's not, and I think that relates to the story because the the story, like this, this scene is like the, especially the final, the, the final, final battle is in the rain, in the mud. They shot this in February, so it's freezing cold. For, for them. These wonderful wide-out shots, just filming everything happening, so you're not missing anything. Absolutely dirty, absolutely gritty, totally rock and roll. Um, it's not over-stylized, it's not over stage. It's, it's just a bunch of dudes trying to kill each other in the mud, and it's, it's, it's violent, and it's, it's kind of insane, honestly. <laughs> Like, and we talk about hero shots, and I feel like there's hero, certain hero moments. Like, when Kikuchio is, is like, picking, like, putting the, stabbing the swords into the little, into the little hill, like, preparing those swords for battle, or, like, combat with, you know, yeah. using, using the bow and arrow, or specific elements like that. But I don't feel like, th- there, there's not, like, a specific moment where it's, like, Jon Snow facing off against Ramsay Bolton's army, like, in the Battle of the Bastards. There's not, like, a lot of iconography, or a lot of, like, those big, like superhero landing kind of moments which is appropriate one of my favorite shots is when you see that shot of like the the bandits descending onto the hill and descending oh that's violent oh yes and then and then you see the the villagers starting to head towards head towards the wall one of the barriers one of my favorite shots in the whole movie and also you were pointing this out to me too is that one the only other times they kind of have like quote-unquote hero shots are like when they have the shots of like the graves of everybody who's fallen, and that yeah, one, I with the, also want the swords add, in it. With, you know, the swords yeah. and spears. I also want to add too the flag uh, that uh, Heihachi, the woodchop guy, made. Like there's certain hero shots where just they just add it at the right moment, and it just like oh my, it just like chef's kiss, perfect, uh, perfect stuff. Chef's kiss to the highest level. But yeah, I, and I feel like the action scenes are also impactful because. I know length is talked about with this movie again, and I get it. That can be a detriment, you know. Yes, yes, it and can. And maybe at times you're not, you're not like, oh my god, but like, <laughs> it helps that you are with these people for three hours, and then the final battle happens, and you're suddenly your blood is is hyped up. You're just, you're crazy. You're trying to like root for your char- favorite characters, and you care. You spent so much time with these people. And they're so distinct and they're so human that you care about them when crap hits the fan, essentially. Yeah. And that's, again, that's, that's uh, 110% Kurosawa. You gotta give shout out to the stunt men and the stunt horses. Horses especially. Oh, uh, horses especially, man. There's such some of those beautiful animals. But, like, seriously, when you there's some moments where, like, the horses just sla- body slam a guy 
and I, and it, it just like it, you know that wasn't complete. <laughs> you're you're like clearly this guy just broke his face. So, like this this guy this guy did not come back to work the next day. Also, shout out to Chishiro Mafune for being in February in the mud in the rain in basically no pants, but nice butt. I'll say that. Nice butt. He's got a nice, nice butt. Nice butt. And then, uh, like, the action scenes, I mean, it, it's like, it takes a while to get to them, but I think it, it really, it not only is satisfying, but it serves, it serves a story purpose, and it really illustrates to you the kind of filmmaker that Kurosawa is, where it's not just spectacle for the sake of spectacle, it adds to the human drama elements that are in Seven Samurai already. 110%. I agree. And this leads me to the themes of the movie, and I'm just going to point this out. It's incredible how much of the human experience Kurosawa is able to shove into one movie. I mean, it's three and a half hours, but you got a love story. You got tragedy. You have bandits portraying their commanders and things like that. You have the themes of war and death and violence. All these things, the concepts of class. And I definitely want to get to that with class. Right. Class is a huge thing with this movie. And it's a huge thing with, a, you know, a, a bunch of kurosawa movies the idea with class especially in seven samurai is that you have the farmers who are the lowest of the low essentially and you have the samurai who are at a sort of a turning point but also the samurai are still like a respected class in certain instances but the thing is at the end of the day you know when they they lose a bunch of samurai and they lose a bunch of farmers but you know what who's still standing the farmers you know, the farmers... The farmers are the important ones. And that kind of... Co I was thinking about this, too. The, it kind of correlates... It kind of sort of relates to today with essential workers, where I always hear people say, like, oh, they should only be paid X amount of dollars or whatever. I don't want to bring too much politics into this, but all art is political on some level. Yeah. And basically, it's, it's just like... It makes me think of the farmers in Seven Samurai because, yes, you know... Uh, these workers are not respected. They're, they're always like put down upon and all that. But you know what? You know who we needed? You know who had to still work during the lockdown during a pandemic? The essential workers. The essential workers. The essential workers will always will always be there. They'll get beat up. They'll 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 get disrespected and all that, but they'll still They'll get put they'll get put down, they'll get beat up, they'll get they'll get trashed but they're the ones. They're the ones that that go through it, and they still go through it to, to this day. day. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that. It's just there's so much. There's so many incredible things to talk about with um, Seven Samurai. So I think it's it's with this movie. I mean, you're able to see that. Yes, I mean, filmmaking is a collaborative effort, which we'll definitely talk touch upon with our next film in this episode. But like, this is truly an well. auteur work because Kurosawa is the director, is one of the co-writers. And um, also, I believe was an editor editor on this movie as well. I, I believe he's edited a bunch of his movies, and you know he's it's truly an Akira Kurosawa um, film. And it, it, again, like I said to you earlier, it it's it takes the spectacle and the human drama and it blends it so well. You know, you got beautifully. It, it's, it's like it's like the almost like look at it, it's like this best of Shakespeare, where like almost something like Hamlet, where it's a long thing. But it, it is it is so good at what it does at encapsulating the human experience or or life itself and all that. And it's just such a universe. It's a surprisingly universal work, considering that it was made in the 50s, made in Japan in a and made in a post-World War II 
Japan where they were feeling kind of feeling kind of crummy. Yeah. You know, Godzilla wasn't too far off in the horizon only a couple months after um, Seven Samurai came out. And uh, it, it, it's just it's amazing that that almost 70 years later, it still has an audience. It still resonates. I still think it has very powerful lessons and themes to take from it. You still got people showing it to their friends who hadn't seen it because all they heard was people going, oh my god, Seven Samurai. But now now I'm one of those people, oh my god, Seven Samurai. <laughs> That's me now. <laughs> That's 100% me. Listen, oh my god, Seven Samurai. I love it. It's, it's a really, it is a long movie, but I, I really enjoyed it. It's got a lot of layers. It's clearly made by uh, an expert at his craft. And I don't imagine I'll watch it again anytime soon just because it's a lot of time to commit. <laughs> but I, I definitely won't turn it down if it's ever like, hey, let's watch this because it's a good movie. I liked it. Thank you for this experience. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it's again, like I said, I, I have shown this to a bunch of friends who are skeptical with like black and white movies with with subtitled movies. I remember one time I'll never forget showing it to a friend and he was just like, Joe, you have to buy this for me for my birthday. Did you? I did, yes. And this is a guy who rarely bought discs, too. So that's a huge, <laughs> it's like a huge thing. That's 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 a move. That's a yeah. good move. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a quick intermission. I promise won't be as long as the one in Seven Samurai. Thank God. And when we get back, we're going to talk about something a bit more animated and recent. Stay tuned. Welcome One back. thing that never changes. You ch- try to change the intro every time, and then that just doesn't change. Love it's it. so easy. It's just, wh- I'm not doing it again. again. <laughs> You're only contractually obligated once per episode to One do that. One time. If I do it again, then I break contract and bad things happen. We don't want that. No. No, we don't. <laughs> He's kind of a diva sometimes, guys. That's, uh, that's all kind I Kind of? Working with this guy, I mean... <laughs> Kind of. Do you want me to, do you want me to say full, full, full fledged? At least to be honest. You're like Carlotta from Phantom of the Opera. Like, you know, yeah, you, you know what? When Andrew Lloyd Webber, when Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the song Prima Donna <laughs> in the 80s, he was thinking about you. And whenever I see it on Broadway, I'm like, yeah, there, that's there I am. Okay, you could have just, you didn't have to lay it on thick. You could have just said, <laughs> He's a it's all or, go go big or go home man i mean we're all we're both yeah home, we're both home. i just say the middle's just as fine it's my favorite part of the sandwich so <laughs> 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 the middle's fine anyway what are we talking what's our, what's our second film there's so much to, there was so much to talk about in the last one right but there's definitely a lot to talk about with this okay one. well first off let me just say this when we were 
kind of pivoting this, it was a bit nerve-wracking because I had no idea what... Because basically how the show works is we both kind of contribute a movie that we both can talk about for the double feature. And for this one, I... I'm not that steeped in samurai movies as you are, or as anyone. I've maybe seen a handful of samurai movies, and I like them. I just haven't taken the plunge, essentially. And it was a bit like, okay, well, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> what what do I want to contribute to this? And initially, the idea was to do Avengers, which admittedly, I right now, is probably not the best time to talk about Avengers. Uh, but a team movie of some sort was maybe the go-to. And I was like, maybe Guardians of the Galaxy, which seemed to have similar themes and similar like story beats. But then I was like, eh, it's a little too on the surface. Plus, I feel like the Guardian movies are still more for you than they are for me. <laughs> yeah, this would have been a complete uh, Joe episode. This would have been an entire Joe episode. And that's fine. Um, then I thought maybe the Kill Bill movies because I love the Kill Bill movies, and I and they're and Tarantino is one of those guys that wears his influences on his sleeve. Like he doesn't shy away from who is inspiring whatever movie he's doing. And so that was initially going to be the idea was to watch the Kill Bill, at least Kill Bill one. Then my, I turned my brain on. <laughs> I finally was like, okay, I, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the past week, I've been kind of diving deep, headfirst into the Leica movies. They did a samurai movie, which is my favorite movie they've done, called Kubo and the Two Strings. Love that movie. So that's what I picked, and here we are. Yeah, and it definitely, I do think it, it, it works. It works with Seven Samurai as a pairing because you're you're dealing with Japanese influences, and I don't, I haven't really dug into the bonus features of Kubo, but honestly, with any sort of like movie that has those Japanese influences, you have to imagine that they. At least on some level, whether it be conscious or conscious or so, uh, you know, in the subconscious of their mind, they're thinking about Kurosawa. It's hard not to think of uh, his influence, especially in in a samurai genre. Um, I do remember reading that Travis Knight, uh, the director of the film, as well as the CEO and one of the lead animators of Leica, and the, and the guy that made the only good uh, live action Transformers movie, uh, <laughs> uh, he also mentioned. A massive influence was Hayao Miyazaki, mm. which is another director that's heavily influential, and another director I've only ever seen one movie from. So <laughs> I need wow. to, I, I am so uncultured. I just want you to know. <laughs> I never knew this. I've the Holy one cow. the only the only one I've seen is Howl's Moving Castle, with uh this one with Christian Bale, right? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just not going to say anything about it because the more I talk about it, the more unpopular I'm going to become. <laughs> anyway. No. Yeah. So I'm so sorry. I need to change my ways. 110. percent Maybe I'll do that. This you gotta week. watch. Gotta watch Totoro. There's a bunch of them you gotta watch. I mean, Porco Rosso because Michael Keaton. Hello. This is true too. What's wrong with those, me? Those, those two are probably my favorites. Honestly. Those are really great. And Spirited Away is one I hear a lot about, but what was I going with this? <laughs> talking about the influences of the movie. You're talking about the influences. Yes. Yeah. So the movie, Kubo, they really went like head first. I, talk, I say head first a lot. They really went into it with uh, the Japanese influences. 
they they really wanted to make everything feel authentic to the culture and authentic even in the story and uh the way everything looked like they really went all out for that one the only problem and we're just going to talk about this at the jump cuz it's cuz it needs to be addressed the only problem is the cast as much as i love the cast it's a problem yeah you you know, there's outside of like maybe minor characters and two major, more major players, I suppose. The rest of the cast is not Asian, or they're not Jap. They're not Japanese. They only have and... two Japanese actors with speaking roles, I believe. For the most part, it's it's white people. Like you got Charlize Theron, Matthew McConaughey. Again, I love both of them. They're both great, but. But it's it's a problem, and you have one of the start kids as your as your main character as Kubo as the title character. You have uh, Voldemort himself, Ralph Fiennes, Ray Fiennes. I don't ever remember uh, how it's pronounced, but uh, he uh, or Lego Alfred, as I like to call him, <laughs> he plays the villain in the film. And then we have the girl with the dragon tattoo, not Numi Rapace, the the American one, uh, Rooney Mara playing uh like these evil like v for vendetta looking like uh sisters and um yes as again as much as i love all these actors and as much as i do think that they give wonderful performances you especially these days you can't help but look at the movie and say they could have they could have done better they they could have i mean you think about like you think about like moana and you think about like Coco, and there's there's some like white people in those movies, but they're usually relegated to smaller supporting roles or like, like side characters. In Moana, yeah. you have like Moana, you have the the, the chicken. <laughs> hey, 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 Alan Tudyk. <laughs> you know, so it, it's it's a matter of like voice acting is a different thing than regular acting. And when you're doing a, vo- a voice, it's a different... You're looking for different things. Mm-hmm. And also, when you're making an animated movie, you want to get celebrities. Yeah, That's the other big yeah, thing too. yeah. And, and unfortunately, um, the track record for Leica financially is not that great, sadly. I think I think people are sleeping on Leica, which is unfortunate. It, it's it's rough because as, as far as I... As far, it's probably the, the most major use of, like, stop motion that we have currently. Yeah, cuz like prior prior to like it, it was probably Ardman who did like Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run, but they they mostly focus on their own. They mostly focus on Wallace and Gromit. I mean, they have Shaun the Sheep, which is a spin-off of Wallace and Gromit more or less. Right. And they've done a lot of smaller things as great as they are, and even there was even a point they did a movie, they did that movie Arthur Christmas, not even stop motion. So I mean I haven't seen it. So oh I didn't know that was them. Yeah, that was them. That was uh, that was Ardman? that was Ardman. Yeah. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I mean I haven't seen that's it, wild. so I don't I I can't speak for the quality of it, but it does kind of like make you go oh because like their thing is stop motion, so you're like oh no. But it was like I was thinking about this. It makes me one of the things I really like about Kubo and the Two Strings. And at one point I wanted to pair Kubo with another with another set of films, but it makes you think of like the Ray Harryhausen right movies yes where. It, it, these are these action these action adventure things where you fight these larger than life monsters. In the case of Harryhausen, you got of course the Cyclops or Talos, the bronze statue or the skeletons or the Hydra, Medusa, the Kraken. All these famous you know giant monsters or some of them are you know human sized 
and all done by stop motion. But in the case of Ray, Har- Ray Harryhausen, with a few minor exceptions, he did it by himself. Mm-hmm. Like, special effects were done by him. Maybe some optical processes were done by other people, maybe. But as far as the stop motion work, it started and ended with Ray Harryhausen. Whereas Leica, it is a huge team. Like, watching the credits of this movie, watching the credits, you see the giant, you see the giant skeleton puppet, which is a huge puppet. When you really get, you get to see compared to people. Huge. And you're, you're just like, it's a, it's, it takes a whole team. It takes, it takes a, a village. village. Really, to bring some of this. It really reminds you, it really does take a village to make a movie. It really does. Like, and Leica, I, I liken, Leica, I liken, blah, blah, blah. Uh, to Pixar a lot because while Pixar has a lot of like significant directors like Brad Bird or Pete Docter or any of these guys who've kind of continuously made films for Pixar, for the most part, the movies are made collectively by Pixar. Like when you think of Pixar, you don't necessarily think of these individual people. And I think like is a lot of the same thing is that while they do have their directors and people who make the story, it is primarily the company that makes the movie. And that's, so that, that that kind of mentality may struggle with like more live action movies, but I think it works really well for animation because, especially with stop motion, because you do need all these come in, you need all these to uh, like really make this wonderful piece of art that is stop motion. And it, and it pairs nicely with Seven Samurai on that on that note because again, Kurosawa might be one of the ultimate auteur filmmakers. I mean, you you see any of his movies, it's a Kurosawa movie, but it also takes. It does take a huge team to assemble that fight sequence at the end of Seven Samurai. It takes people to write the music and all, all that stuff. But it also, with like you said, with animation, you say it brilliantly, outside of a handful of directors, like maybe like Brad Bird or whatever, you don't always think of specific... You don't always think of specific anime directors. And before somebody says, oh, what about Joe Lusseter? Or, or what, about, what about all these two? And I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe the animation community may know them. But, like, there's only... Really, there's only a handful of those. But it's it, it, again, goes back to that point. It's a collaborative effort, which is why a lot of animated movies, sometimes they get takes mm-hmm. two directors to make them. I mean, hell, the very the, the unofficial very first Leica film, Corpse Bride, had two directors. It was Tim Burton and, I believe, Mike Johnson. And yes, Corpse Bride, I count, because it's a stop-motion film made by Leica, even though it was kind of before Leica became Leica, but I count it anyways. They might not count it, but I count. It's my personal thing. But we grandfather it in here at yes. Two Dudes One Double. Even though oddly enough, it's probably my least favorite. <laughs> it's probably like... <laughs> <laughs> and you're and you're a Tim Burton Tim Burton fan, Johnny Depp fan, and, and, and all of that. <laughs> Listen, but no, um, yeah, admittedly, it is my least favorite. Yeah. This is not your proudest moment on film. (laughs) It's not a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's just not my favorite. That's all. (laughs) And that's fine. So Kubo and the Two Strings. You got got this boy named Kubo. He's a titular character. Uh, Lives in a cave with his mom. And he loves origami. And he plays a shamisen. Which is kind of like 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 a Japanese banjo a little bit. And when he plays the shamisen, it uh, it the origami paper comes out and folds into these intricate figures. And he typically, prior to going on his adventure, like he uses that skill and that magic to tell stories to the people in the village and inspire them 
and wow them. He's he's essentially he's a he's a storyteller. He's an entertainer. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and uh, one of the things with, with this with this movie too, you talk about Pixar and some of the other influences like Miyazaki, and some of the things I like about those films is that they're not always the standard like kids movies when you when you watch those films. Oh, so that's what I like about Laika is that like while they are consciously making kids movies, they aren't like trying to aim it directly at kids or like they're not they're not pan like like we were talking about with paddington they're not pandering to that demographic no no they're not um and what's also what's also crazy too is that the it also like with a kids movie sometimes you might have like a a popular pop song from that time period you know, playing, but I think it's uh, "My Guitar Gently Weeps" is a cover <laughs> of a much older song, and definitely not hip with the kids. Which is a beautiful cover, by the way. It's it played in the credits. Um, no, but I also I really like this too. Because, like I said, it was like the Pixar because you have the uh, some of the characters, like particularly with Beetle and Monkey, and there's directions that they go with them. And you in a traditional movie, you think, oh. They're going to become this, and it'll all be happily ever after. Hubba da dooba da the end, or whatever. <laughs> hubba da dooba da, and it's like, no, not, and then, yeah, hubba da dooba. It's it's the non trademark <laughs> version of Bippy Boppy. You know that those you know it, it doesn't end exactly the way that you want it. It ends in a way that maybe makes more sense, or the way that it and it's something happen, that I would say, like we said, yeah, another. it's something that plays well into like the themes of the movie, which is very much family. It's a family. It's a family picture. And also um, memories, and 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 while it's the idea that while we all will eventually pass on, um, but through memories and through family and through legacy, whether something small like like just us or people big like Kurosawa, you know, it's just it's just that legacy and that memory, that fond feeling of of remembrance that lives on. So like. It's 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 like that idea of immortality through love and family. And it's it's kind of beautiful the way that it all plays out. The end of one story is just the beginning of another another story. And you said it I was thinking about the same thing with Kurosawa where again like he's gone, he's not making any more movies, you know, but people still take the influence of his movies. They still retell. We had a Magnificent 7 remake we a couple did. Of years. We did. I saw that in theaters. And that was a remake of a movie. That was also a remake, <laughs> and <laughs> like it, it's the, the legacy and the story, the legacy of storytelling. Um, it continues on. And I think Kubo is also just about that—the power of of the story. You know, um, exactly and the stories we tell each other, the stories we tell ourselves about our families and our. Cultures. I mean, that's that's like the whole the whole thing that he does at the beginning of the movie is that he's while he is telling the story that wows everyone in the village it's a story that his mom tells him of his dad like everyone else sees it as this like exciting you know samurai versus giant monsters kind of story which is essentially what we watch as we're watching the movie but um he's just retelling the story that his mom tells him of his father who he never met but we're we're going on with like with 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 the um with the idea of of stop motion you know like is kind of like the like we were saying the only one that that's kind of doing this, and we think about the range of emotions that we get out of the faces of the characters in Kubo mm-hmm. and the two strings, you know, um, 
it, it's come a long way since 1933's King Kong, as far as the expressions that the characters can give. You have multiple heads that, like, especially with the Leica characters, I'm sure they just, a lot of the time, they just they change, change heads, change faces. Or they can, you know, maybe make adjustments here, here and there. And also, you were talking about this while we were watching the movie, how CG plays Yeah, so, it. like, when they were making, at least specifically with this movie... Um, typically with most stop motion movies, you don't see, you don't really see a lot of CG. It's more like, like when you're watching, uh, some of the best movies that have to use CG, they use it to enhance the practical aspect of it all. Like in Shape of Water, you know, Doug Jones might look a certain way, but, uh, to, to enhance the makeup effect, to enhance the practical nature of, of the, of the, uh, the river God fish monster character that he plays, they add a little bit of CGI. Um, and with, with this movie, they do pretty much exactly the same because there's things in the, in this movie that you don't typically see in a lot of stop motion, like, like water, for example, water is, kind of kind of a scary notion for a stop motion animator animator i imagine because it's it's constantly moving you can't like keep it still take a picture move it a little bit so they had to kind of get innovative with it so they like did these kind of like molds and these wire riggings to kind of get the simulation of it a little bit and then um they kind of animated on top of that um cg elements to make the water look realistic but also fit in the world and it's again the the stuff that they did in this movie is outstanding, especially in in just just in general. But like some of the innovative things that they had to do to get this movie to be the way it is uh, for stop motion, even just like the skeleton puppet, the eighteen like we were talking about the eighteen foot skeleton puppet. To my knowledge, still the biggest stop motion puppet ever made um, is a nightmare. Because the the because clearly most stop motion puppets are like six little six inch like you know collectible action figures or something that are incredibly poseable and will probably deteriorate over time. With those, they're easy to manipulate, but with a giant eighteen foot red skeleton Ray Harryhausen looking <laughs> scary monster, you, you literally are like trying to jerry rig every little thing like the jawbone the arms the fingers just to try to make it all work and it i think it it took them significantly longer to get that one that scene shot and i think there's even a moment when matthew mcconaughey uh when uh beetle says thank god it's over i think that's the i think the animators wanted that put in when that scene was over they're like okay we're done <laughs> oh thank goodness the cg elements i also what the great thing about great cgi is that you don't think about no it. you don't and i never i never thought about the cgi in this movie even with like the, with the water effects which water in general as far as special effects are notoriously difficult to work with oh yeah and they did it they really knocked it out of the park as far as the water stuff in this movie at the any time when they can do water well i remember as being very impressed with moana like with with water and like the CG animation on that, that was amazing. But what Kubo also makes you think of, speaking of the elements of practical and digital, is that Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance, the awesome Netflix show that I highly recommend. Yes, predominantly they're I'll finish puppets, it eventually, but they use CG elements to enhance. I will finish it. Eventually. You will finish it eventually. Um, they use CG elements to enhance. The creatures of Thra. Yeah. You know, and they, it doesn't, it's never 
that distracting. Also, fun fact, this is the second animated film in history to be nominated for Best Visual Effects. Yes, it is. Um, the, uh, the, uh, oddly enough, the only other one was Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And again, that's just that's just a testament to the filmmakers and like a, just like, again, the sheer talent of uh, the way they were able to like incorporate like the more CG elements into the the world of Kubo and then the storytelling. It's 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 incredibly impressive the way they're all able to do that. That's probably one of my favorite things about stop motion is and it's like it's like great animation like when you look at like old school animated films like the hand-drawn things that we don't get anymore sadly uh like if you watch old disney just when you look at like the like the beast castle in beauty and the beast you know you see this like immense like gorgeous but scary castle that was of course beautifully drawn by somebody and put on the screen the same thing with stop motion, I think, to an even greater extent, is when you see, when you, when you kind of step away for a second and look at everything that's, that was made, which I recommend doing after watching the, the, the movie, uh, when you watch it a second time, and really observe everything that, that they did, for the most part, every single thing you see was made by someone in a machine shop, made by, by, uh, by a seamstress, and just everything was just was literally like every little detail it's absolutely like mind blowing and and somewhat beautiful like the amount of work that went into everything that you see on screen it's it's insane and the amount of like you got to be patient too <laughs> patience is key if you're a stop motion animator cuz not only are you making the tiniest little shirts and the tiniest little socks and the tiniest little everything. But then, of course, comes actually animating it. So you move it a little bit, take a picture, move it a little bit more. You take a picture, move it a little bit more, take a picture. Patience is a virtue. It's not even like, um, it's not even just that, but with, they were talking about, I remember watching this on the bonus features for King Kong, is that the lights, your lights might change the next day. Yeah. So you have to work straight through to to work on this and if something is flubbed if if you accidentally flub something you got to start all over you got to start you start all over again there's, so there's something there's something inherently beautiful and also somewhat disturbing <laughs> like the inherent like desperation when you especially when you watch like king kong and you see there, there's stuff there's stuff there's markers that are left that are left in for a brief frame mm-hmm. i'll point them out to you when we watch king kong at some point and it's it just makes you appreciate it even more because you're just like oh my gosh like <laughs> they, somebody had to do this for like 12 hours yeah over more probably more than 12 hours sometimes even more like 24 hours in a day and just like oh like 24 hours a day and you probably get like a, a second or something or like 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 a like a like a like a few like seconds of whatever you're trying to do yeah uh and it's funny too um when you mentioned like flub- flubbing up anything so like Going back to Corpse Bride, this is fun fact. That that movie essentially was the first movie where they introduced the idea of using like DSLR cameras to take the pic instead of like shooting it on film to use digital, mm-hmm. which is immensely more helpful, especially in the stop motion department. I'd like to think you know film will always be better than digital, but in the world of stop motion, I would say yeah, digital is probably the way to go. But it's funny too. Like there's a point I I will always notice this. When I watch Corpse Bride, where there's a dead pixel, 
in in a shot. Oh, I remember you telling me this. And every time I see it, I always think it's on my TV. I'm like, oh god, no, no, my TV. It's got. Oh, it's just the movie. <laughs> and it's it's and it's the craziest thing to think like. It's it's like the modern equivalent of like check the gate and no one checked the gate on that one so it's like who used the camera with the dead pixel what jerk <laughs> what jerk's using it dang it we gotta keep it in the movie because it's a great shot <laughs> but and it pops up too periodically so they use the camera more than once so yeah like it, it just goes to show you that e- even in that instance it like there's mistakes but again the the amount of like time and patience and the continuity person on set must should be getting the highest paycheck besides like maybe the director the person that does continuity and the script supervisors give them the most money i'm just saying it's it's incredibly important yeah i mean making a movie is hard it's very hard making any movie any movie even if there's a movie that you see that it's a bad movie just know that it was it was definitely difficult making it (laughs) On some on some level, at the very least, people got paid. That's always a that's always a plus. I like like even if it's a bad movie. Oh no, they got paid. Oh yeah, no, they got paid. But, but they I'm still like, work. Just saying, like there was still hard work. Yeah. that is done. Like there there are like very like on, even like with a live action movie, you're you're on set for twelve sometimes twelve or more hours right? a day. You know, it's very exhausting. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, and stop motion is just doing things very slowly it, and is like a you have to be very patient like if regular movies are like steve rogers stop motion is sam wilson <laughs> there's your marvel <laughs> reference right there you, you can figure it out on your own <laughs> it's just it's actually like the i, I do like the characters in this movie like they're they're simple enough to under to understand the characters but they do they do have some like we talked about Seven Samurai, they do have some layers you can peel back, you know. Um like I think about the monkey. Monkey's the great. Monkey's I love a great her. character in the in this movie. Beatles Beatles fun. And uh, I think Kubo as like a main protagonist like kid character works out very well. He does surprisingly. And I think but I, if I had to pick who your favorite character was, <laughs> I I have a feeling it's the little origami Hanzo that guides them throughout their journey. Listen, and that's strictly because in my in my <laughs> head, I imagined if he was still alive, Toshiro Mifune is just voicing that character and just saying <laughs> things in Japanese to tell them because, like, the rest of the main cast is not Japanese. <laughs> so that's my just headcanon. You know right what? There. It works. Um, I accept it. <laughs> I accept it. <laughs> yeah. That aside, this actually feels like a reverse of like our first episode when you were bringing up Anthony Hopkins <laughs> in Mask of Zorro. And then when you brought up Kubo, I'm like, wait a minute, Matthew McConaughey <laughs> isn't Japanese. You know what? I will say Kubo's worse in that regard. At least the other one, you could say, oh, it was tw- it was the 90s. This was four years, was this four years old, this movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. But you know what? That aside... It is a great movie. It's one of my favorite animated movies to not be from Disney. Yeah, it, it's hard to make. It, it's it's. I know people always complain about an, non animated movies. I, I mean, animated movies that have to go against Disney. But I feel like it, it's it's also just hard to make animated movies in general. And Disney is just very consistent. At They've it. capitalized and on the market. I've only seen a handful of like 
Yeah. yeah, and I think like I've only seen a handful. I've just, I've seen Coraline, I've seen Kubo, and I think you know that they're, they're from what I've seen, they do a really good good job with with that stuff. And Kubo definitely deserved the two Oscar nominations that it had, which were for animated film, and I said ver- uh, earlier visual. No, effects. yeah, the, impressive. Honestly. The company I'm absolutely a fan of. I I mean I just love stop motion animation to begin with, and that's probably just inherent from the Tim Burton e like nature of my of my life, but. And just, yeah. just appreciating the work, and it's kind of a perfect marriage of like, like like I was saying earlier, like like the CG and the hand drawn animation um, in one, because like it it gives you that three dimensional aspect that you want from the more CG movies, but also the handcrafted nature of an animated film uh, just drawn on paper. And again, I just I abs- I've I, I, this whole week I've been binging all the movies. So I watched I watched Coraline. I watched uh, Corpse Bride, uh, and I watched uh, Paranorman, and I watched. I recently just watched Missing Link, which came out last year with uh, Zach Galifianakis and uh, Hugh Jackman and Zoe Saldana. Um, and also, uh, just just as a side note, one of my favorite things about like uh, when they're not adapting someone else's story, like Coraline is based on a Neil Gaiman book, for example. Um, I love that they kind of riff on classic genres. So like Paranormans, very much like George Romero, like 80s zombie movies. And Missing Link is like Indiana Jones, classic adventure type stories. And then Kubo very much is a play on like the samurai movie. And so I, I like that they kind of play with those genres and have fun with them. And I also think of it too, again, we got to do a Harryhausen related episode at some point, but some of the Ray Harryhausen fantasy films like Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts or some of the other, some a handful of the other ones or Clash of the Titans, you know, just with with these with these these basic basic but not not nec- not dumb characters, you know. Just like the, the the simple story, but that works really well, especially in these movies with like all the themes and all that. And you have to face these larger than life creatures, beautifully wonderful, colorful, um uh, environment with Kubo and the two strings. It's definitely an animated movie I do enjoy revisiting periodically. And it's it's uh it's definitely at least for now it's my favorite samurai movie. Well, that and Seven Seven Samurai is still like up there. It's but I'd probably still say Kubo. <laughs> Kubo isn't three and a half hours, so I think it helps. <laughs> but then again, it's like Kubo's not three and a half hours, but it's got white people playing Japanese people, so you know it's a balance. It's a balance, okay? <laughs> l- l- listen, listen, listen. Like I said, just you got to try out some of the other Kurosawa movies. Got to watch Hidden Fortress. Got to watch Rashomon, Yojimbo, Throne of Blood especially. And you know what? I'll try to get you into the Leica movies more. How about that? We'll, we'll do like a, like a swap. That sounds good to me. All right. I like it. So... With with Seven Samurai and Kubo and those two strings, here's what I sort of take away from the from this pairing of movies. Okay, it's incredibly hard to make movies, as I said earlier. Oh yeah, Seven Samurai was in production for over a year, and at the time before Godzilla came around, it was the most expensive film ever made by Japan. I was reading I was reading that somewhere, and it, you can tell it's an incredibly difficult production when you watch it on screen. How well made it is especially the last action scene how how rough that must have been on the actors and the stuntmen and the horses shout out to the horses don't get enough love shout out and of course 
Kubo, because it's a stop-motion animated movie, takes so much effort to create every single little, little detail frame. Just Everything. crazy. And also, I think, too, that Asian um, Asian cinema and Asian influences are still are still prevalent today. And they're still they can still be used in our modern filmmaking, um, modern filmmaking language. And Seven Samurai was sort of like the launching point for a lot of Western audiences as far as like the samurai and the works of Kurosawa would be used and all that. But Kubo is also just kind of like a continuation of like, okay, it was, it took other Japanese influences and it was a movie released a couple years ago and had a pretty mainstream, was a pretty mainstream um, release, you know, despite the box office. But it's, um, I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about, about this stuff? I mean, I think you, I think you pretty much said it well enough. I mean, it's incredibly hard, like you said, to make a movie. You know, there's so many people, so many jobs, so many different elements come into play. And uh, also just, again, going back to the idea of legacy, going back to the idea of, you know, no matter what era, no matter what uh, part of the world, like influence comes from anywhere. Influence can continuously come from one place. And it's like, while, while Kubo may not you know, directly acknowledge Kurosawa as like an inspiration, you can definitely see that he was in some way playing a hand in telling the story of Kubo and how Kubo came to be. Cause you can't, cause it's like, you can't not do a samurai movie and not have some kind of acknowledgement or, you know, take away from Kurosawa and everything he did in, in his work. And so it's just, it's just it's crazy that, you know, decades, generations later, this, you know, influences are still being utilized and still being used in more modern movies. And it's just it's 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 the legacy, it's the language of cinema, I guess you could say. I don't know. That's what that's that's what, that's my takeaway. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful note to conclude on. And as you always, this has been a great pleasure to record this with you. Folks, follow us on all of our social media pages that we'll have in our um, in our links and whatnot. Please do. Um, let us know what are some of your favorite um, favorite Japanese movies or if even favorite animated movies or stop motion or whatever. even movies that are influenced. Like, what are some what are some favorite film influences? How about that? Well. Or you know what else is another good question? What is give give us one filmmaker where like Kurosawa or whatever, that if you took them out of film history, we'd have a very different landscape. Great question. Whether it be good Great or bad. Great question. So let us know. Our, our social medias are in the links. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we both have letterboxes. So we've bo- I've reviewed Kubo and Seven Samurai on there. So you can check out our amusing. As have I. Yes, our, our amusing reviews on there and our YouTube channels, of course. Anyway, thanks, folks, for listening, and um, check us out next week. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Sponsor for today's episode is not Ghost of Tsushima, but if they wanted to, we would gladly do it. Please, let us sponsor you. Give us a call. We're here for you. Music for today's episode is brought to us by John and Kenny Armstrong. Quick shout out to our friends at Griftcast, wonderful fellows with a wonderful podcast. Give them a listen. Highly recommend it. And of course, a hint for next week's double feature. Two fairy tales with a monster and a maiden, but neither 
are Disney films. Well, one is, technically. 